Hey everyone, it's Heather. I'm so excited about our new resource for single women, Authentically You. One of the most challenging parts of life is navigating relationships. This can be especially true for women who have been tainted by negative sexual experiences and mistakes from their past, or when the struggle with porn and masturbation takes hold and won't let go. This leaves them feeling distant from God, separated by the weight of shame and regret. If this is you, you're not alone. Authentically You was written specifically for single and college-aged women, those who are on the working career path and those who are in college. This 20-lesson curriculum is easily adaptable to a busy work schedule or a college semester system. Through this group experience, you'll explore how your past pain and trauma contribute to distorted beliefs and an unhealthy thought life. You'll uncover the role your family of origin plays in your past and current behaviors and address the issues that perpetuate compulsive and addictive patterns. And through the use of weekly exercises, strategic tools, and self-care focus, you'll learn how to live in health, how to live as your true, authentic self. I know God has a plan for your life to bring you to a place of health and wholeness. If you allow it, God will do amazing things in you and through you. So pre-order today, Authentically You. Go to puredesire.org A-Y. That's puredesire.org A-Y. Welcome to the Pure Desire Podcast, where we partner with you to bring hope and freedom on your journey to purity. Hey there, I'm your host, Trevor Windsor, and we're so thankful you're taking time out of your day to hang out with us. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Nick Stumbo. Hello. And our guest today is the International Women's Groups Coordinator, Ashley Jamison. Ashley, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Awesome. We're so glad to have you on the podcast. Today, we're going to talk through what a healthy and effective Pure Desire group ministry looks like. It's a very important and significant piece to really getting traction going for sexual and emotional health in the church. So Ashley, thanks for being here. We're going to ask you some questions about that. First one is, can you just describe your role here at Pure Desire and how long you've been in that role? I have two roles. I'm on the speaking team, which will be uh, two years this September or October, somewhere around there. And then I'm also the International Groups Coordinator for Women, and I've been doing that since, I can't remember, <laughs> I think about a year. Has it really felt that long? Is that? <laughs> it's been over a year. It's been over a year because right. I went to Salem last February. and Okay, so it's been over a year. A year in February that I've been doing that. And what does that role look like as the the women's groups coordinator? What is that role exactly? Um, That would be I oversee all the women's groups globally. And what I really do is work with churches and church leaders and women's group leaders to um, help them establish pure desire groups in their church, help them run them more efficiently, help them figure out what they need. Every church is unique and has different set of circumstances and, and leadership on board. So... I work with the churches directly to help them get strong Pure Desire groups going. Awesome. Yeah, Ashley, we're so glad you're here because it really does underscore that this isn't just a men's issue, that women have struggles of their own. Uh, Women are being hurt by the struggles of their spouse. And to have a staff member that's dedicated to the women's side of things, I think just communicates we want to help the whole family, men and women. So thanks for your role and what you do. And in your words, uh, would you tell our listeners, why are groups such an important part uh, of the Pure Desire ministry? Well, groups are important 
the reason why I love doing what I do and being involved as groups is because that's where I found my healing. And so a group is important for women um, or men um, to get in there and it really helps them to see that they're not alone, that there are other people that when they read their answers that they think nobody else could understand and nobody else would get it, nobody else has been there, and then they hear other group members that struggle with the same thing, it just shows them that they're not alone, that they're not weird, that they're not um, broken beyond repair. And so the group dynamic specifically helps break down shame, but it also helps um, you to see that even when you share your scariest, darkest things with people that they still love you and you gain that acceptance and um, and I feel like that's really where a lot of the healing comes from, other than, of course, the material and the tools and all of that, but that group dynamic of being with others in the same battle. And that's such a freeing thing. I mean, I feel like we've all experienced that in groups, and it's just an unbelievable feeling of these people actually know who I am, all my junk, everything that's going on, but yet they still love me and want to spend time with me. Like that, we're almost taught that that's not what the world is like. So to be in groups like that is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember even specifically when I was going through groups and there were some really, really deep-seated secrets that I hadn't even really tried to draw up, but when I heard other people sharing them, it just really made me feel free to share those things and and how much um, weight was lifted off of me after being able to talk about those things and realize others that are wonderful Christian women had been through the same kind of thing. Yeah, well, and addiction thrives in isolation. And in an isolation, we're, we're trying harder on our own, and it just reinforces that message of shame. Why can't I figure this out? But in community, we find healing, and we find uh, the, the answers as we listen to others' journey that God applies to our own. So help us on this podcast, Ashley, kind of understand, you know, for some of our listeners tuning in, they've maybe been in groups for years, and this to them will be a helpful reminder. But I'm sure we have others listening that they're getting ready to launch their first group or considering a group. So walk through kind of the basics of what makes for an effective pure desire group. What are some of the parameters in terms of group size and meeting length, those sorts of things that really make for a good pure desire group? Well, for a good group, um, I know for sure from my own experience that the more you follow the guidelines and the structure, the better your groups are going to thrive because um, it really is about creating a safe environment. So the material itself is anywhere between seven and nine months, depending on which group you're in. And then you probably would add another month um, maybe for if it falls on a Christmas or going over the intro or if you watch an episode of the Conquer series in your group. Um, and so I would say anywhere between seven and ten months is is a good time frame for the groups. And you want to make sure to, to keep it at that because you want to keep people's traction going and you want to um, keep them motivated to get through the workbook. And and then the, the time frame itself is about two hours. So you want to schedule enough time to where you can get through the journal answers and get through the workbook answers without feeling rushed. And everybody has a chance to share every answer. And one of the things I hate to see is when somebody has an answer written out and it's maybe something they've never shared with anybody in their whole life and then they don't have time to get to their answer or, um, or the leader bounces around and that answer skipped for them and that could have been a really good opportunity. So making sure to have another enough time to schedule um, everything you need to do, the, the workbook, the journal, and then wrapping up. Um, so seven to ten months, two hours, um, once a week. And then the ideal group size would be four to six. And that, again, is one, to keep the environment safe and, and so people can form bonds and stick with that same group, but also to make sure that you have enough time within the group to cover everything. Those are just some of the basics of... Um, what the group looks like. 
So what about group attendance? Is it okay if someone is only able to come once in a while, or what do we recommend in terms of attendance? No, the healing really comes from doing the work, and you won't be able to renew your mind or your spirit um, or your behaviors if you're not actively in, involved in your recovery and working every week. And so the group itself is two hours, but then you also should be doing 20 to 30 minutes of homework every day because you need to be um, proactive about your healing and you need to be working on it every day. And we, we always say that you're either moving forward or backwards. You're not standing still. So every day you need to be putting your mind on the right track of recovery. And so to, to miss groups is really detrimental to your healing. And there are other types of groups for that. Um, I know that there are different recovery groups or different small groups where you can kind of come and go. Um, but this group is different because the tools in here really do provide healing and renewal. And so you have to be there. And then it also breaks the safety when somebody's in and out of the group um, that, you know, if they miss the week where everybody shared their traumas or their stories and then they're back the next week and they're kind of out of the loop, it just kind of starts to deteriorate the group. So it's very important to be there. Yeah, that commitment has to be a priority. So in the beginning of all of our workbooks, people can find group guidelines and we encourage them to read those, to follow those. And one of the guidelines that we do get quite a bit of questions about is uh, the idea of advice giving, that we specifically say that advice giving is not allowed. And for a, a lot of people that have gone to other kind of groups, that might seem very odd. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone said something that I can help them or correct them or tell them what to do, why wouldn't I you know, give them advice on how to fix their situation? So how, how would you answer that question? Why is advice giving not permitted? Well, there are a couple angles um, about that that question that I could address that really show the importance of letting people self-discover. One is that you never know the advice you give. It, it could be a trigger for somebody. So specifically in one of my groups, I had um, an older woman give a verse of encouragement to a younger woman. And you would think that that's pretty benign and and positive. Um, but that verse that she used to encourage the younger woman after the younger woman just shared all this trauma was actually the same verse that her mom used to use. And her mm. mom was abusive to her. And, and that same verse was tied into there. And so it actually became a huge trigger and trauma just right there in the group. And so from that point on, it was really hard for the young woman to be able to share any answers because she felt like um, the older woman was her mom. And she also mm. felt like, um, everything that she was going to share was going to in her mind was going through the filter of well how is this older woman going to try to help me and I feel like I'm just the broken bird so that's one angle but then also research suggests that when we when we self-discover dopamine is released and so that motivates us to want to keep self-discovering and want to keep going and and a lot of times when people are told to do something then it releases chemicals that makes make them want to fight flight or freeze and so we don't want to shut people down we want them to be able to keep feeling good and have that traction to be motivated to keep learning mm. about themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about consistency in the group and that you need that. You need people showing up in order to have that trust and that rapport. Um, so what if someone isn't showing up to group or doing any of the homework? What do we do? Well, then you would give them a warning the first time um, and not so much warning as showing them that really for themselves, this is good. It's not just for the safety of the group. You want to remind them of the group guidelines, but it's not its not just about the safety of the group. It's also about their own healing. And so to keep somebody in group, whether they're the addict or the person that's been betrayed, you're really setting them up for false hope if you let them just come and go because they could get a mindset of, I'm in group, 
so why am I not getting better? Or, you know, if they if they only went to three groups out of each month and then they're not better by the time uh, group is finished, then they could say, well, I tried Pure Desire and it didn't work. But mm-hmm. they really weren't doing all the work and they were mm-hmm. missing some key lessons, um, some key discoveries about themselves and also that accountability each week of moving forward. And so um, false hope would be one. Um, the other one would be, again, making the group unsafe. And so you'd really want to share that with them, that it's important for their own healing and their own renewal, that if they don't have the time and the money and the energy or whatever it is to invest in the recovery right now, then this specific group is not right for them right now, and they can come back when they're ready. Um, but it's 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 really good to encourage them that they should spend more time and energy and money on their recovery mm-hmm. than they did on their addiction. Yeah. Um, and then if it if the behavior continues, then then I would just ask them to wait until the next group starts because it's it's not doing them any favors and it's not doing the group any favors. Um, and and you'll get strong, healthy people out of the group that are truly transformed and ready to go on and help others if yeah. you if you really stick to helping them um, get their homework done and creating a safe environment. And and another thing would be that you know with addicts a lot of times they're going to aim for and do what they're told to do. And so if you set the bar low, that's what they're going to aim for. I shouldn't say they, I should say we, because I've been through the eight pillars groups myself. Yeah. But um, And so I know for myself that if you give me five lines to fill out, that's how many lines I'm going to fill out. Sure. If you tell me this is due for homework, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do just the minimum because I'm busy mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm, I'm an addict of, you know, recovering of myse- myself in certain areas. And so we want to set the bar um, to a place where they're actually going to achieve success. Well, I feel like, too, when I was in groups, it, it really felt like I would get almost as much out of other people's answers and what they were processing through than my own work in my own workbook. You know, I would come and I would feel, man, I'm not really sure if I if I pressed into this enough. And then I listened to someone else share and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I got it. You know, I finally understand a little bit more about my own addiction, my own wounds. Uh, and so I feel like that's just like this hidden, really benefit to being at group so consistently. Right. And that actually brings up a really good point of why it's so important to everybody be on the same lesson. Some groups um, like to n- never turn anybody away and have them just kind of come in um whenever and it's really important that everybody's on the same lesson because you get so much out of answering the question for yourself and then hearing four to five different answers to the same question I can't tell you how many discoveries I made about myself Mm -hmm. or I was able to put a name on my trauma that I never even categorized as trauma Mm -hmm. I categorized it as I was a bad kid I did bad things I was I was messed up what's wrong with me and then when I hear other people give that answer and it describes my trauma or my abuse I I'm able to put a name with it and so it's important that everybody's on the same lesson during group yeah one of the things I found effective in a group is if you have someone not doing homework is to treat it as a group issue first and not personalize it right away Mm -hmm. so if I you know have someone who didn't do homework at the end of a group time I might turn everyone back to the group guidelines and say let's just remind ourselves of what makes for an effective group and kind of remind the whole group together why we do the homework and and then usually the individual maybe that hasn't done work gets the message and if it then happens again then you kind of have a foundation to go to them personally and I always try to do it outside of group so as to not mm-hmm. call someone onto the carpet or embarrass them but maybe right after the group or even on a follow-up phone call say hey it's you know a couple of weeks now you're not doing homework what's up do you understand how important it is and uh, but usually if you treat it as a group issue and remind people why, just what you've been talking about, Ashley, why it's so important, 
I find people want, they want to be healed. Mm -hmm. They want, you know, to be in the group to be changed. And if you're able to remind everyone why that's so important, I think most people get the picture and start to uh, get with the program and do their homework. And if they don't, they really are kind of self-revealing. I'm not ready to commit to this to the level it's going to take to be free. And they do need to to wait then until they are ready. Well, and too, I think that you, because there are times in my groups where I felt like if I didn't put as much time into the homework and I realized I'm actually taking away from the group rather than adding to the group, that that if I get all this self-revelation from another person's answer, then I'm potentially withholding that from somebody else as I process through my own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the nature of these groups, Ashley, people come sometimes in the midst of real chaos, real crisis, uh, challenging, challenging situations, and it, they can't help but bring that up as part of their uh, maybe sharing about their week or going through their faster scale, their group check-in. Uh, so what happens if a group member comes in crisis and you're just not able to get too much of the homework? Is that okay, or how do you coach groups around that situation? Well, part of being in groups is is building bonds and being relational. Um, and so if somebody's in crisis, you do want to have compassion and address the person in crisis. That's really um, what their group members are there for. But um, what we try to do is have them go through the journal and the faster scale first. So at least everybody's getting that check-in. Um, and then you just kind of take a pause and say, we see that you're in crisis. So everybody's going to share their faster scale. And um, and if you don't know what the faster scale is, that's in the journal. And, um, and we'll talk about a little bit of the tools. And then have the person who's in crisis go last. And if it ends up taking up the rest of group time, that's okay to be able to address that person because dealing with these kind of groups, there are some really traumatic things that happen during people's weeks. Now, if the person is in crisis all the time, then they yeah. may need some counseling. <laughs> uh, and and counseling isn't bad. I love counseling. If you know, I think everybody should go to counseling. It's really great. But about 30% of group members need counseling. They're they're their traumas are very complex or a, a group is just not going to address all those things or get to all those things. They need somebody more one-on-one that can work with them. And so if somebody's in crisis all the time, then that would be when you would maybe want to refer them to get some counseling um, either with the group or or um, first and then come back to the group when the group is enough. But definitely if, if somebody has something come up, you know, that they just found out their spouse an affair or, or, or relapsed, um, take the time to address that and, and be with them through that. Yeah, when it's the unique situation, you want to take time to care. But when it's becoming an ongoing, like, oh, they're in crisis every week, right. you have to guard the rest of the group's time and investment. Otherwise, the whole group starts to feel like, oh, this group's just about you know, Julie or whoever it is that right. we're all just there for her. And, and they want to be invested in their own story. So you have to guard the, the group time by saying, hey, we, we know you're going through some rough stuff, but we have to get through our homework. We have to let others share. We, uh, so coming back to the, the good of the group, I think, is helpful. And, and then to direct that person to counseling is, is really wise. And, and speaking of the good of the group, you know, we have so many groups that start. And then when people are in groups, they start to get that freedom and they start to understand mm-hmm. more. And they start telling their friends about what they're learning. And then it's like, oh, wow, I think I want to be in that group. And so we get to a point where groups have been going for a while and new members want to join. So what what if somebody wants to join the group after it's already started? Do we let people in or when is the cutoff to let people in? Um, I would say it's a hard no after Chapter 3. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's just a hard no. But even before Chapter 3, I really lean towards once the group is going and you're, you're – your people, your women or your men are established and they're rolling in the material, I think the earlier you can close it off, the better if you're if you're at that number of four to six. And then after that, it would really be 
um, you know, use some discernment and wisdom, have the leader meet with the individual and make sure that they're really ready, that they mm-hmm. understand what the bar is, that you're totally committed, you're doing homework, because the the last thing you want to do is have somebody join the group, disrupt it. Even if it's a good disruption, it's still a disruption when somebody sure. joins and then have them not really be committed and then leave again. And so I really um, would, you know, encourage the leader to make sure that that person understands that this is not just a drop in and out kind of group. Mm-hmm. Um and that, you know, that it's really important that they're committed and that it seems like it's a good fit because once the group's going, you kind of understand the people a little bit and, yeah. and can tell usually if somebody's going to be a good fit. Um, if if the groups are closed, because it does take time to develop the ministry in your church, and that can be a problem when you have groups that are nine months to ten months long, it's, it's hard because you are going to have people who wait. And so some of the options would be, um, to run a conquer series um, and break that up into 10 parts so that you can buy yourself some time because it doesn't take as much training from a leader to just plug in a DVD mm-hmm. and show something that's educational. Um, you, we have plenty of books at Pure Desire um, that they can order the Pure Desire Stories for Women, the Pure Desire Stories for Men that that people that I suggest people start reading while they're waiting. And so a lot of times when, when somebody wants to get into a group, specifically at my church, I'll say, order this book, read through it, and then call me back when you're done. And a lot of times that alone shows me their commitment level. There are so many times I don't even get a call back, and um, and we kind of have a running wait list. But it's it's better to have them wait to get into a, a group in the beginning and, and run the whole group than to try to just pop them in in the middle because, one, they're not going to be caught up. They're not going to be as bonded with the other group members. Um, our material is designed to kind of – untie one knot at a time at a time and and it's and it's laid out in a certain order for so for them to just jump in they could miss some crucial steps before getting into some of the really intense tools Um, and so it's just it's better kind of for everybody to just do a group from the beginning and then we also have groups online um, through puredesire.org that if if a group's not going to be available for another 10 months at their church they could consider doing an online group through video one from a leadership level this makes sense why you may want to try staggering the starting point of your groups. Because I know at a lot of churches, the traditional kickoff for all your small groups is September, sometime in the fall, and then we just run them all year. And and you might do that maybe with your first Pure Desire group. But once you have more than one group, it really is wise to try to have a a, a group that starts in the fall and then another group that starts in January, particularly because the holidays are just a real challenging time for people struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. There tend to be uh, unique struggles and relapses that if you have a group that starts early in the new year, you get a whole new group of people ready to admit their struggle and say, I need help. And um, you, if you have even more groups, say you're now having three, four, five groups, you may have another group that launches mid-spring because right. then you're just always a few months away. That's what we tried to have at, at my church was that we were always within a few months of another new group starting so that if someone came, because when they come in crisis and they're ready to jump into a group, you don't want to tell them, well, we got nothing for a year. You'll have to wait till next fall. Right. Because to them, that's an eternity if right now they're in the middle of, of their crisis. Um, so just to think from a leadership level about how could we create some staggered starts so that there's a group beginning roughly every quarter. Right. And 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 what to piggyback off what Nick said, that's what we did at our church. Was the first group obviously um, has to get going and take a while. But, you know, just within a short three and a half years of running Pure Desire groups at our church, we've had hundreds of people go through groups and we've had over 25 different women's groups between eight pillars behind the mask and betrayal and beyond and so 
we have Saturday groups and weekend groups and evening groups and daytime groups with childcare. And so just to give lots of options. And so it's usually not more than a couple months wait before somebody can get in. And so if you have that Conquer series, if you have a book for them to read, at least it's giving them something until the group starts. And then also the way our material is set up it's very user friendly and because it's a self-discovery group and not an advice giving group the leaders don't need to be counselors and so sometimes there are there are people that can can call and try to figure out how do I just get two of my friends in church together and how do we just start walking through this material and if somebody can facilitate the time Mm -hmm. and the place and that that they're going to just say okay we're on this page then it's it's pretty simple that's what I did at at our church um and, and you don't publicize it. You don't invite, you know, the whole church. But if you can just gather a couple of friends and start going through the material, that can be effective as well. Yeah. You reminded me, Ashley, that my wife and I were really blessed when we went through our first group seven years ago that they had uh, the men and women's groups at the same time and they offered child care. And that made it possible for us and quite a few other couples to do groups because now it wasn't two nights of our week. It was one and our kids were cared for. Mm-hmm. And they structured it well because the women's groups were in one part of the building and the men's groups were in another part. And it was possible that I didn't know who was in the women's groups and the gals didn't know who was in the men's. Now there was some of that interaction around picking up your kids, but generally that was um, a common space enough that wasn't a big deal. But I, I just think that's good for churches to know. You, you can do it that way. You can set it up in such a format that men's and women's groups in different parts of the building could be meeting at the same time and have an option for child care so that someone doesn't have that excuse of, well, I'd come to a group, but yeah. there's nothing for my kids, especially for the single parent um, or maybe someone that doesn't, you know, the other spouse is always working at that time. It could give them an outlet to be at group um, even with their kids. Right. And if churches have multiple services, um, like our church does, then a lot of times we hold group during one of the services yeah. because then mm-hmm. the kids are just in church. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of like you feel good about going to group because your kids are in church and, yeah. you know, not stressed about that part. So it's important to know that if you do the legwork up front, you can set it up to where no one's going to be left out in the cold. Because when people come to Pure Desire and want to join, it, they're looking for hope and they're looking for freedom. And you don't want to just kick them out and slam, slam the door. So. Right. So, Ashley, earlier you were talking about some situations where people maybe trigger other people in group based on what they're sharing or any encouragement maybe that that happens or takes place. Um, So what happens if someone in the group is triggered by something that someone shares or an encouragement? Well, if somebody is triggered and it seems to be something they can't work through or it's becoming a problem, then really the person who is triggered by the other person um, may want to consider finding a different group or doing counseling just one-on-one. But um, anybody can be a trigger. I mean, just a Bible verse you say, a color of hair, um, the way you smell, the way you where you work. And so it's really important that we don't start um, having the person who was the trigger leave, but the person who is triggered. If It could be a good learning point for them, something that they renew their mind that say, okay, for me, I had an issue with certain color of hair because of my childhood trauma. And so if I was in group and I had somebody in group that had that certain color hair, it could be a good learning point for me to renew my mind that this is the same trigger, but I'm reacting different and it's a different outcome. And this person is loving and accepting of me and it actually could help me renew and heal some of those areas where I had trauma. Um, The other part would be trying to do a little bit of uh, research as a group leader before you put your groups together. So, you know, family members really shouldn't be in a group together. Mm. Um, if if you have, you know, the woman that um, 
you know, cheated with this gal's husband. Maybe they shouldn't be in group together. You know, if you can avoid <laughs> some of that stuff on the, the front end, you can't with all of it. But yeah. there are some things where you just know, I don't think putting these two people together in group would be a good idea. And, you know, that's just a little question asking. So in every group, there's the men and women are on a different stage in their journey. Uh, you've sometimes got the husband who's in a group and the wife isn't really facing much yet or the wife is in a group and the husband's not. And that can create in couples a situation where um, when one spouse comes back home from group, uh, they're being peppered with questions from the other. You know, what did you guys talk about? I want to see your homework. I want to I read your book. What are you struggling with? Talk a little bit about what's appropriate for a spouse to share about their group uh, when they come home or when they're being asked about how they're doing. What, what should they be open to sharing and, and what is probably not helpful? They should not share other people's names <laughs> or other people's problems. Um, but yeah, I am totally guilty of this. When John first joined a group and I wasn't in group yet, I just, I read through all his homework and it was so traumatic. And really what it does is if, if John knows that I'm reading his homework, then when he's filling out his homework, he's not going to be very honest. And if he's not being very honest in his homework, then he's not going to get the full That's healing right. that he needs. And Ooh. so I'm really hurting myself in the long run by looking at his homework and not giving him a safe place to process those things. And so... Um, aside from, you know, the trauma that it causes by getting in there and just the anxiety of snooping anyways. But um, really, like the faster skill is a tool we use in group, and that's really designed to to learn how to become self-aware, not just with sexual addiction, but with anything, with work, with food, with social media, with parenting. It's just a self-awareness tool. And so that's a safe tool to use with your spouse, whether they're in group or not, just to share your level of awareness and how you're becoming aware and maybe some changes that you want to make for the next week. That was really healthy for John and I to share because instead of, um, let's say, him coming home from work and just going upstairs or or going away and getting a break from the kids, and then I'd become better, like, well, why does he need a break? I'm the one home with four kids all day. Um, it was It was good for me to see I'm low on my faster scale and I'm exhausted. And then I kind of felt like, there's something here. I can help. I can be a team player. Mm -hmm. If he's exhausted, that means he's just one step above relapse, which would then just spiral the whole family out of control, and and then I would be hurt. And so I really started to see something um, tangible that I could work with in order to be a team player and help him out. And and sometimes he'll see me running around the kitchen, and he'll be like, you're speeding up, or you're binge eating, which is a lot. And so he can kind of point out to me, and it gives you this language that's a safe place to communicate because you're really becoming self-aware and sharing it with your spouse. Um, but homework is definitely, out of the book, is is not a great idea to share. Maybe things you're learning about yourself. Um, if you discovered something, a light bulb went off of your childhood or, yeah. or some kind of self-discovery like that, those are great things to share. And it actually starts to build um, some confidence in the relationship that you're able to start communicating and you're discovering things about yourself. Yeah, so to summarize, you'd say you shouldn't be sharing other people's stories right. or their information. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, a spouse should not be reading her, his or her spouse's workbook, but they should be sharing faster scales together as a way to give insight into where they're at and then sharing those significant moments or light bulbs that, that could help deepen the relationship, that that's kind of the, the right parameters for what to share and what not to share. Yes. Uh, so along those lines, kind of a, a similar topic might be the guy or gal who's starting group um, at the very beginning, and the, the spouse is not real certain why they need to go to this group because they don't know the whole story. And so they begin to pepper them with the questions of, I need to know everything right now. Uh, tell, me, tell me all of it. What kind of advice do you give to the spouse of um, how to respond to that situation, and why is it 
typically not a good idea to just unload everything all at once at the beginning uh, with your spouse. Well, there are a couple reasons, especially if your spouse isn't in a group, then they're going to have no support and no um, no safe place to process the pain with, you know, the trauma. And so when you when you force something to come out that fast, it's um, it a lot of times becomes a, a personalized and a blame game. And, and a lot of times if there's an addict that just joined group, they don't even fully understand where everything came from. So it's important to keep the relationship safe. So if there's um, if there's an affair with another person or if, if they're involved with something illegal, those things are really important to come out they right away because, out, yeah. because they're harmful to the person and the family. Um, but other than that, it's really important to establish some uh, support in a group first before disclosing things. And that's something, again, that we, we laid out in the workbook in a certain order. So we have something, um, we have tools that help them be able to create plans for recovery and relapse and and communicating with each other. And so if both spouses would just get in the group and use the tools and use the workbook, it's going to be laid out in a way where they can start learning when it's appropriate to, to share things and, and when it's um, and, and maybe when things shouldn't be shared, there should be a little bit more learning to do. If, if somebody is really adamant about a disclosure up front, we always suggest getting in with a counselor. That's, it's just going to be easier on both people to have some direction and support. And so if a spouse is really pushing for disclosure, then um, we have counselors at Pure Desire, and that would be the place to go if, if, it's, if it's something that needs to come out right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've definitely heard from more couples where they'll say, you know, I, I asked for too much too soon. I got more information than I wanted. And when I look back, I, I wish I wouldn't have pressed for that. I've heard a lot more of that than the other side of, oh, why did we wait? And I wish we yeah. wouldn't have been patient. I, I rarely, if ever, hear that side. So my encouragement to couples is always, even if it doesn't make sense right now, like, well, why should I wait? Why should I be patient? Why should I let him go through group for several months before we start to have a deeper, honest conversation about some of that, even if they don't understand, if they'll trust that process. Mm-hmm. And what I always say is, well, watch what he does or watch what she does. If, if they're committed to the group and making their phone calls and doing their homework, take great confidence that you're going to be wor- working with a, a spouse who's changing and growing and maturing, yeah. and you'll be glad for that. And, and then when you get that disclosure, when you get those answers, it'll be from a, a healthier place and a more open and honest place where if you keep pressing for it right now, they're going to do their best, but they're still stuck in their own rationalization and denial. You're not even going to get a very coherent or yeah. clear story, and there's going to be more later. And that staggered disclosure is more painful in the long run than the initial information itself. So that that just be, again, my encouragement to couples is I, I always hear people say, I'm, I, I asked too much too soon. And I rarely, if ever, hear, oh, I wish yeah. we wouldn't have waited so long. Right. And it, trust the process mm-hmm. is really what it's coming down to. Just trust the process that we've uh, we've seen works when put in place. Yeah. And I actually saw that with John when he went through group. And I we didn't have pure desire, you know, anybody. We didn't know there was support. There wasn't, you know, I wasn't working here. There wasn't a regional group leader uh, structure or anything like that. And I, you know, I experienced that staggered disclosure. And what it felt like was living in a habitual state of, just chronic anxiety because you were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And and I did not believe John when he said, well, I didn't remember that till just now. And and I just couldn't believe that until I started going through my own group. I went through Betrayal and Beyond and I went through Eight Pillars. And then I'm like, oh, it took me going through that group three times to remember that I did that or it took me, yeah. you know. And so I really, I really saw that, that that is something that happens. You learn things as you're going through group and you're going to get a fuller, uh, more complete story at the end of group. Yeah. 
So obviously groups are a central piece to what we do at Pure Desire. It's, it's really, I mean, we talked about it in previous episodes that we're wounded in community and we're healed in community. So groups are such a huge piece. And we probably have listeners right now who are listening to this episode and are, are stuck. They don't know what to do. So if you had any encouragement for any group leader, whether it's they're just starting out now or they've been doing it for a few years and they're burnt out, what kind of encouragement would you give to a group leader? I would say for the group leader, the more you can just follow the structure, the more you're going to do for your group members. It really it really is something where it's it's decades of experience put together, and it's it's already been tried, and we've already seen the results and what works best, and this is what works best, and that's why we call them our best practices and our group guidelines. We put them in our books so that you really don't have to try um, different methods when, when we've seen this produce really great results time and again. And so if a group leader can just stick to doing everything in the book, the journal and the workbook, the journal is just as important. It's not just a book with blank lines to journal your feelings. It has the, you know, the tools for recovery in it and the faster scale that we were referencing earlier. Um, and so it's, it's important to use all of the tools to do them all the way. And if you don't understand the tools um, from the description in the book, then we have regional group leaders that you can call, and they will give you examples. They will answer your questions. They will help you understand why we use it. And so we never want any leader to feel like they don't understand something or they don't have support. We want everybody to feel confident to be able to um, facilitate the groups because it's really all in there. They just need to make sure that everybody's doing all the work, showing up at the right time, coming to group, and then and then it kind of does its own thing from there because it is a self-discovery type group. Awesome. Well, Ashley, this was awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and, yeah. and helping us out, talk through effective group dynamics. And uh, you can contact Ashley, actually. She is our international women's groups coordinator. If you need to contact her, have questions about groups, you can do so. Just email her at ashleyj at puredesire.org. And uh, you can look her up also on our website. And thank you for listening to the Pure Desire podcast. If you like what you're hearing and want to keep up with us, we'd ask that you subscribe and check out our website, puredesire.org. Also, you can follow us on social media at puredesirepdmi. Again, that's Pure Desire PDMI. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pure Desire podcast. For more information, check out our website, www.puredesire.org. Check in each week for new content on the podcast, and we pray that it will help you find hope and freedom on your journey to purity. Here's what's coming up next week on the Pure Desire podcast. Every woman that takes a breath. This is going to be one of our best resources that we've ever put out. They're wanting to be married. They're wanting to be sexual. And they're saying, what does this even look like? Is it even okay to have these discussions? I think that's one of the things that's interesting about women who struggle is that we don't take good care of ourselves. Right. We, we are the last person, and sometimes we are taking care of everybody else, but we're the last person that we take care of. And that, I think, is my favorite part about these resources.